0: Mornings. We're looking at the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order and in a very rich section of John's gospel this morning. If you're with us here this morning and you don't have a Bible, we want you to have a Bible so you can not only listen, but follow along with your eyes. So there's men coming up the aisle right now. And if you just get their attention, uh, they will get a Bible into your hands this morning. John, chapter 13, verse 31. So when he, that is Judas, had gone out to betray Jesus, Jesus said, now the son of man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new covenant I give to you, that you love one another, as I have, also, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Let's pray together. Lord, we just acknowledge that what we are entering into in these verses of Scripture is into a very private and a very intimate place between you and your disciples. And Lord, we ask this morning, as your disciples, that you would be very personal to us, that you would give us a very intimate understanding of your heart and your will in these verses, Lord, and that you would speak to us in a personal and in an intimate way this morning by your Holy Spirit. We pray, Lord, that this morning by your spirit, it would be as if we were in that very room hearing these things for the first time and we ask it in Jesus name. Amen. Please be seated. In our passage, Jesus is in an upper room with his disciples in the city of Jerusalem on the night before his crucifixion. Jesus himself referred to his coming death upon the cross in verses 31 and 32 no less than five times by using some variation of the word glory. And the cross was a glorious thing. It is a glorious thing because it was by means of the cross that this glorious work of sinful man being able to be uh, forgiven and enter into a relationship with God was accomplished. Jesus has just washed the feet of the disciples in answer to their argument between one another over which one of them was the greatest in the kingdom. And in washing their feet, he has communicated to them that greatness in the kingdom of God comes by being a servant. Judas has been dismissed from among them, and he's now gone forth to complete his act of betrayal toward Jesus and betraying Jesus to the Jewish religious leaders. And now with Judas gone, sitting with the remaining eleven of the twelve, in what is essentially a great calm before what is going to be a great, great storm the next day, Jesus begins to pour out His heart to the disciples in earnest. In chapters 13 through 17 of John's Gospel, they constitute Jesus' final words to His disciples before the cross. Final words are sacred. Final words are treasured. They are treasured by the one. If you have ever listened to final words from someone that you love or you care about, then you understand it. Final words spoken by the one who is about to die. Those are special words to hear the words of someone we love that constitute their final words. Those are special words. And here is Jesus speaking in this very unique time in his public ministry before the cross. And everything that he says here is sacred and precious to us as his followers. And Jesus begins his final words to the disciples on a very interesting subject. You think about all the things that he could have brought up and began his conversation with them or his his teaching of them at this moment. I mean, he could have brought up all kinds of different things, and yet he begins this, this final section, his final words to the disciples on the subject of love, where he commands them, verses 34 and 35, and commands us that we are to love one another just as he has loved them and loved us. I think that in order to understand the significance of his command in verses 34 and 35 to love one another, It is very important to notice a couple of things that Jesus declares to the disciples from verse 33. Notice he declares to them first, little children, I will be with you a little while longer. What do you mean a little while longer? Where are you going? That would have been their response. He closes the verse by saying to them, where I am going, you cannot come. In other words, what Jesus is teaching the disciples in verses 34 and 35 regarding loving one another is completely dominated by the reality of his coming separation from them. Because Jesus knew at dawn of the next day, a great religious crowd was going to gather in the Garden of Gethsemane, arrest him, that he would ultimately be crucified, he would be buried, he would rise again on the third day, and then ultimately uh, ascend into heaven, back into the glory that he came from 40 days following his resurrection. And all of those great events have produced what is now almost a 2,000 year physical separation between Jesus and his disciples on the earth. And it is because of this coming separation that he gives his commandment concerning love. How do we know that this commandment is dominated by this separation? His final words recorded in verse 33 are, are as, is, is, is there is. And so now I say to you, in other words, in light of this coming separation, I give you a new commandment that is to dominate and to govern your relationships with one another as Christians during this physical separation. Now, Jesus' mention of his coming departure would have greatly heightened the anxiety of the disciples. They would not have wanted to hear that he was going anywhere further than a stone's throw away from them at this point in time. But in hearing about this separation, it would have also given them a needed urgency to give great weight to what it is that he was going to speak to them concerning love. It's as if Jesus was saying to them, in the light of what's coming, in the light of this coming separation, you are going to need each other. You're going to need each other like you've never needed each other before. And the days of petty conflict and arguments over which one of you is the greatest. Those days are over. You're going to need one another to survive in this world. Notice the command itself in verse 34. You are to love one another. And in this, Jesus is speaking about the love that we are to have as a Christian toward another Christian. Jesus has already taught his disciples that they were to love their neighbors as themselves, just as the law of Moses required. Jesus went further than the law of Moses when he demanded of us as his disciples that we were not only to love our neighbors as ourselves, but we were also to even love our enemies. But here he commands that we are to love one another. And sometimes people wonder why This call to love one another would be considered a new command, as Jesus describes it here, in light of his previous commands to love our neighbor as ourselves, and also to love even our enemies. And the command to love isn't new, but this applying of our love to this command to love one another, Christian to Christian, that was a new commandment. We notice, too, that Jesus made this called to love one another, a commandment. The fact that he made it a commandment tells us that loving our fellow Christians is not something that is always easy to do. It's not something that comes naturally to us. It's not something that is automatic. We get saved and we just, start, we just love one another all the way until we're into heaven together. And so he commands it. And in commanding it, he's making sure that we don't think that this is something that's optional. He doesn't tell us that we can love Christians that are easy to love and we can just jettison the rest. Forget about all the ones that are hard uh, to love. We all know that just because a person is a Christian doesn't automatically make them a joy to be around or even. Easy to love and because Jesus makes it a commandment to us, it makes us realize we have to put as much effort into this as required in order to obey him here. I think about some of the obstacles that we face to naturally loving one another as Christians. There's the difference of personality in the body of Christ. Sometimes some personalities just don't automatically click with other personalities. You look at these 11 disciples that remain in the room with him that you could not have 11 more different personalities than these guys possessed. It was amazing how different they were. And yet Jesus calls them to love one another. There's the obstacle of different backgrounds in life. Sometimes we come from one background, another comes from another background. We can't understand each other because we don't come from the same background. That's a reality. These disciples came from very diverse backgrounds. The majority of them were blue collar guys. They worked in their father's family business as fishermen doing good, hard blue collar work. At least one of them was a white collar worker. Levi, also known as Matthew, who was a tax collector. So they came from all kinds of different backgrounds. There are the obstacles of differences of interests in life. What interests you doesn't interest me necessarily, and vice versa. There's the obstacle of personal preferences. There is the obstacle of different opinions that we hold. Personally, and even concerning spiritual things uh, on, on non-essentials, you have among the disciples that are with Jesus in that upper room. You've got Simon, who's a zealot, part of a religious party among the Jews that wanted to revolt against the Romans and and take off their yoke from dominating Israel. And then you had a Levi, who was a tax collector, was making money off of the whole Uh, relationship, differences of opinions, and then there are the differences of giftings and callings, which shape every single one of us. Every one of us as Christians has been given at least one gift of the Holy Spirit, and because we have that, there's great blessing in our life. But one of the challenges that we face in being gifted by God in some way is there is that great tendency to see things solely in the perspective of my gifting and to elevate that above all other giftings, to give that the preeminence, think it is the most important part of the body of Christ, an expression of Christ in the whole body, while somebody else feels the same way about their gift and their calling and the emphasis that God has added to their life because of what the focus of their gift places their eyes on in the body of Christ and out into the world. And it creates conflict in terms of priorities in our lives. And then there is... The issue of familiarity. One of the problems with loving other Christians is we're around them a lot, and God has made it deliberately so. The Bible says we are not to forsake the assembling of the saints, which is what we're doing here today, as is the habit of some. And God, by design, keeps us as Christians together. In connection with one another, whether in a service like this or a home Bible study or whatever it might be. He deliberately keeps us a part of one another's lives. And with that comes a familiarity. We come to know more about other Christians that were around and the people in our church than we know about many times even relatives and certainly strangers and and people that don't know the Lord, have you ever noticed that on one level, it's easier to love a stranger than it is to love another Christian? Sometimes it's easier to love an unsaved person sometimes than another Christian. Why? In general, it's because we just don't know them well enough yet. And if we were forced by God to spend as much time with them as what God's commandments force us to spend time with one another as Christians, we would come to know them just as well as we know the Christians that are around us. And we would have just as great a difficulty in the natural loving them as we find ourselves having loving one another as Christians. It's this issue of familiarity. Then there's the obstacle of just plain old conflict with one another and carnality <laughs> and that conflict and carnality that comes from sin and selfishness and self-exaltation and just the old Adam nature. And that's what's going on here. The disciples, as Jesus is speaking to them, I mean, they're arguing over which one of them is going to be the greatest. They are in conflict with each other. They are divided among one another over just the old Adam nature. Another thing we have to deal with in terms of loving one another in the way that Christ calls us to is we have to deal with how diverse Christians are. One of the great things about going on a short term or a long term mission trip and and uh, and maybe even going to a share night and, and learning it that way. And my prayer for our our body here in God's will is that everyone would have at least one cross cultural uh, experience with the body of Christ to interact with a portion of the body of Christ that is not in the United States of America and to go outside of the United States of America and then to realize the amazing diversity. Of that body and the amazing diversity by which people worship the Lord and the diversity, the great diversity that exists even within our community for how people love the Lord and how they worship the Lord. How do you keep this kind of diversity unified and how do you keep this kind of diversity in the body of Christ loving one another and how God has done it is this. He has done it by providing us as Christians with greater with truths and with realities that unite us as Christians that are even greater than the things that would divide us. We are as Christians the Bible says saved by faith each one of us as Christians saved by faith In the same precious blood of Christ, we are indwelt by the same Holy Spirit, indwelt by God Almighty. Each one of us as Christians are united together in our passion and our desire to reach the whole world with this gospel, as God has called us to do. The Apostle Paul voiced some of this in his letter to the church at Ephesus, where he declared in chapter four, "I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace." And then here it is: this is how he keeps it all united. He reminds us there is one body, there is. One Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. In this area of having a compassion and a love for others in the body of Christ, I think it's very helpful, at least it is for me. To remember that every single Christian in this world, every one of them in this city and every one of them on the other side of the world and everywhere in between, every Christian that talks the talk and walks the walk pays a price for that. It may be a hidden price that you and I never see, but they pay a price to be faithful to God And to his word, I like to remember also that each and every Christian in this world is a stranger here. They're a pilgrim here. And one of the most wonderful things about walking as a Christian and growing as a Christian and to grow as a Christian is to become more like Christ. And that's the greatest experience that a human being can have. But one of the things that it does is that work of the Spirit occurs in our life. This world gets stranger and stranger and stranger to us by the day and by the week. Until we realize we have no home here. But we are very far away from home in this world until one day we enter into our home when we enter into heaven itself. And it produces great compassion in my heart to realize that that is a portion of every Christian. It is important to remember that every Christian in this world spends their life every single day of their life, swimming against the flow and the current of this world, just like you go into a stream of water, And just to stand against the strength of the stream, the great effort that it takes not to be washed away by it. And then to be someone who says, I not only want to be able to stand in this stream, but I want to make progress against it. I want to go upstream. And the more and the more the world turns away from the Lord and his definitions of right and wrong and good and bad and how he wants the world to be, the stronger the stream or the flow is in the opposite direction of the Christian and the more it takes to move against that stream. And that's the portion of every serious Christian in this world. They fight against that, the flow of the world's morality, which is really immorality, its definitions of right and wrong, its attitudes towards sin, its views about the meaning and the purpose of life, its defining and its redefining of God and who and what He is. And then, of course, its attempt to conform our thinking and our doing, and most of all, our priorities, as well as just out-and-out persecution against us. Every Christian faces that. Every single day in our pilgrimage. And it takes a great effort to resist all of it. And then you put on top of it. All of the sins and the temptations of this world. And how accessible sin has become. And then you throw into all of it. The spiritual warfare that is specifically directed against us as Christians. A warfare the world knows nothing about. And I would contend that there is great cause for a very deep love and compassion for every single Christian that is living that life. We really, really do need each other. And I have found that the Lord has wonderful ways of reminding us how much we need each other and wonderful ways of keeping us united and keeping us compassionate toward one another over and over again through the years. And I've known the Lord since 1980. I've watched various rifts occur between one Christian and another, and I've experienced it myself. I've been at fault and others have been at fault. And some rift occurs and there's really no love between the two parties at a particular point in time. And then you watch how hard God works. You think about what he's keeping track of every day. Just keeping track of our lives, just just our lives and the whole complexity, the whole big picture. But he can look at our lives individually and say, there is a rift here in this person's life between her and this other person. And he will work specifically in that little tiny thing that you would think would be insignificant to him in the light of everything else that's going on in the whole world and the universe. But he puts his focus on it. And he will work and he will work and he will work and work until that relationship gets turned around and ultimately becomes a relationship where there is a mutual love and respect for one another. And so often I've seen it. Where God will work circumstances in such a way that the offended party is determined to not only not love that other person the rest of their life, but hate them with every thought. Despite the asking for forgiveness, despite repentance, despite them having done everything they could do to make it right. And God is funny. And he's strong. And he is very, very determined, and he is very good at what he does. And that is being a dad to his children and keeping his family together. And he will work the circumstances to where the offended party now, at this point in time in their life, desperately needs something from that offending party. And, bring, and, and maybe even a rescue from that person. And then unite them through the event. The body of Christ is the greatest thing happening in the world. It is the greatest family you can belong to. It's the only thing that's happening in this world. Sometimes people look and they say, well, I'm going to stop going to church. I'm going to stop fellowshipping. I'm not going to have anything to do with Christians because I got burned one time or a hundred times. Listen, we'd all be out there on our own if that was an excuse that God left to us. But the answer isn't to leave the assembling together of the saints and a love for the body of Christ. Because. Because. To do that is to jump from the frying pan to the fire. There can be trouble in the frying pan. But it's not half as bad as what happens when you jump out of it into the fire. I like what somebody I heard somebody say many years ago in, in, in related to all of this. And they said that the church is kind of like Noah's are, uh in that it was only the flood on the outside that helped them to bear the smell on the inside. There's a little bit of truth to that. I think another important motivation to love one another comes with a reminder of how much Jesus loves the church, how much he loves the body of Christ for all of its spots, for all of its wrinkles, for all of its flaws. And trust me, he knows them times a million compared to what you know about any one life and yet he loves his church whatever the denomination whatever the non-denomination whatever the individual person he is deeply in love with them and committed to them in the same way that he is to us the Holy Spirit put it this way And it's a very exhortive passage to me in in a good way in this related to all of this. And Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus again, and he said in chapter five, husbands, love your wives. And then here it is, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her. To himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. We have spots and we have wrinkles now, and that's just the way that it is. But Jesus is deeply committed to his body and to his people, and so we have to be careful about what we say about those he loves so much. It's also helpful, I think, to remember, at least it is for me, when I'm tempted to become hypercritical of other Christians or another portion of the body of Christ, i like the Holy Spirit to remind me that the whole body of Christ is blood-bought, and to think about that blood that flowed down that cross, and it didn't just flow down the cross as life wasn't just given for me or all the people that I agree with and see things the way that I see them or have the same personality or they're easy to love. But that blood was shed for every Christian. We notice in verse 34, the degree to which Jesus told us that we're to love one another. Love's a big subject. If I were to just get up here this morning and say, listen, this is what Jesus says. You we need to love one another. And we just dismiss without a little bit of help myself. And I think a lot of us in this room, we'd head back to the car and say, all right, I'm willing to do that. What in the world does it look like? Love is a big word. I love my wife. I love chocolate chip cookies. I love pizza. I love Pepsi. Kind of like Coke when there isn't a Pepsi available. I mean, we love, we use the word love all over the place. So what does this look like in our lives? And Jesus said, as I, in other words, Jesus is our single great example of how we are to love one another. And basically he's saying, I want you to, I want you to make me your single great lone example of what love looks like toward one another. I remember years ago, they had the WWJD bracelets. Maybe they're still popular today in a different kind of form. But Christians would wear them in order to be reminded of the question, what would Jesus do in this situation that they found themselves in? And it's a good question to ask ourselves in our relationships with one another. And that's what Jesus is basically telling us to do. In this situation, in this relationship with this other member of the body of Christ or this other church or denomination, what would Jesus do toward them in this circumstance? And then to do that. And as we do, that we will be safe. And so we look in the scriptures and we realize, all right, um, I'm finding myself in this situation with this person. Where did Jesus face that same circumstance? And then. What did he do? How did he conduct himself in response to that? And as I then do that, I can know I'm loving this person uh, as, as Christ loves them in the way that Christ has called me to love them. And sometimes that takes the form of encouragement. It takes the form of comfort. Sometimes we discover as we look at Jesus's life that love can take the form of rebuke. It can take the form of uh, exhortation. In other words, this love has a backbone. It can be very strong. God's love always does what is best for the other person in this situation. And sometimes that's an arm around the shoulder and a word of encouragement. And sometimes it's a very clear rebuke. And that's the way that it is. The older I get as a Christian, the longer I walk with the Lord, the more I firmly am convinced that the greatest expressions of love and the hardest expressions of love in general are the ones where someone will do the hard thing in another person's life. So sometimes we get this idea that love is always going to look, it's always going to be very emotional and it's just going to be words and all. It's a lot bigger than that. We live in a country today where this whole idea and defining of love is Christians. has pendulum swung almost completely to one extreme where it's only thought of in terms of comfort and encouragement. That if anybody says the hard thing or does the hard thing. Uh, it is quickly Christians who will cry out the, the loudest first that you're not being very loving. And yet I have found and maybe it's because the pendulum has swung so far that these kind of people and there is rare as a ruby, at least in our house, we don't have any rubies, but there is rare as a, the rarest gem where someone will go forward to another person who is about to drive their life off of a cliff and destroy themselves and set other people with them and jump in and say something hard about it and do something hard in order to prevent it. That's just as loving as words of comfort or words of encouragement. Notice that Jesus said, as I have to the disciples it's, it, 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 earlier, he said, as I he's the he's the model of in the degree to which we're to love one another. But then he says, as I have, in other words, it's not just what would Jesus do as good as that is, but also to ask myself, what has Jesus done for me in my life? When I found myself in the same position that this person finds themselves in, in their relationship with me, what did Jesus do with me in this situation? And then I am to be that to the other person and respond that way. And that's how sometimes we look and we say in the scriptures, well, I don't see where Jesus dealt with this just exactly and all. There's hardly any of us in this room is a Christian. Where someone has failed us or sinned against us as a Christian, where we haven't first committed that sin against Christ. We're familiar with it in a a personal relationship. And to stop and to ask myself, what did Christ do in my life? How did he treat me? How did he handle that in my life? And then to in turn do that to the other person. And so it speaks to us. That not only is Jesus our example concerning love, but the degree to which we are to love and out of our own past history with the Lord. And as we make Jesus our model, our example concerning love, we'll never be disappointed if we do. Now, why is this whole loving of one another as Christians? Why is it so important? It must be important because Jesus tells us why it's important in verse 35. He said, by this... And notice the singularity of it. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus knows what we are very, very prone to forget, and that is that the whole world is watching us as Christians. And they're coming to conclusions about our God, about Jesus. As they do. And so Jesus is saying, because they are watching you, whether you realize it or not, this is what I want them to see when they see you interacting with one another. It's important to Jesus that we represent the family name of Christian properly before the world. I don't know what's happening today. In, in terms of how people are raising their children and these kind of things in terms of the culture, I'm not talking about Christians necessarily. But when I was a boy. It wasn't unusual. That if one of my friends went out and did something stupid. And got caught for doing it. that whoever was the patriarch of the family. Whether it was the father or an uncle or whatever, someone would grab him by the back of the neck and remind him, you are a Kyle. You are a, you fill in your name. You're not like everybody else in the world. You don't get to behave that way. Because what you do is not a reflection merely upon yourself. What you do is a reflection on this entire family. Do you understand me, mister? Yes, sir, we would say. And it was driven home to us to think before we acted because we were representing a larger family. And Jesus is telling us here, it's a big deal Sometimes we're like beggars. Please become a Christian. Please become a Christian. God is so sad. You do Him such a big favor if you become a Christian. He will love saving you. He wants you to be a Christian. But we can begin, as we become a Christian, under these kind of emotions and these, this kind of stuff. Forget it's a big deal to carry that name. It's a big deal to call myself a Christian. It is a big deal to identify myself with Jesus Christ who sits at the right hand of God in heaven. And that we do represent a family that is far greater than our own. And to take that responsibility and to be sober about it. Once you become a Christian, and I don't need to tell you this, everybody watches you, at least in the early weeks and months. Sometimes people complain. They say, I don't like being in the Christian ministry, you know, because now you're in a fishbowl. Everybody's in a fishbowl that becomes a Christian. Once people know you're a Christian, I mean, all of your fellow students, your coworkers, your neighbors, your family members, everybody, all of them begin to watch you. See what kind of a Christian they are. Now, some people watch us in order to find something wrong. They want to see some flaw and some sin or hypocrisy or something, and then they think that will justify their rejection of Jesus and all, which is a fallacy. can't reject Christ on the basis of us. You have to reject Christ on the basis of him, which is a hard thing to do because he's perfect. But sometimes people look just to fault finds. And then other people, they look because they're looking for hope in the world and the meaning of life. They've never heard about Christ. And so they begin to watch us very, very carefully. Coming to conclusions about our God as a result of seeing what he turns us into individually and watching how we treat one another and how we speak of one another before they then introduce themselves into that same family it's very, very sobering. You and I, we we cannot control the fact that people are going to watch our lives once they come to know that we're Christians. It's that is in place by design, but everything is okay because we can control what they see when they watch our lives. And Jesus said, what I want them to see is your love for one another. Which brings us to the how of all of this. How in the world do we live this kind of life? You can't live this on your own. You can't live this in your own strength. If you think I can do this on my own, I know of six Christians off the top of my mind, head that I could send to you, and you'll fumble them before the end of the day. They're very difficult to get along with. Just teasing. The first thing that we have to do in all of this is we have to have a want to. And you notice that word if in verse 35. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples. So he gives the command. But then there's the word if. Now it's a matter whether we're going to do it or not. We have a choice as Christians whether we're going to obey the command or not. God isn't going to force us. We have to want to be this kind of a Christian. And we have to want to be this kind of Christian because somehow this is super important to our Savior. Do you have the want to, to be this kind of Christian? You say, well, I used to have it, but then I got burned. Now I don't have that want to anymore. Would you look down in your Bible and see if the Holy Spirit erased the previous verses because you got burned? No matter how hard we get burned in the body of Christ, sometimes God works it all together for good. He throws grace on top of it. He makes us like Christ in ways that we wouldn't otherwise be. We can have pity party if we want to, but it's only because we aren't noticing the grace and the great thing that God is doing, even through bad things that happen to us. We should have a want to and bring that to the table because it's important to Jesus. And then we need the power of the Holy Spirit to obey this commandment. No doubt about it. The Holy Spirit has a lot of titles and names that are given to him in the Bible. I think my favorite name for the Holy Spirit is used twice of him in the New Testament, where he is called the Spirit of Christ. It is the Holy Spirit who will give us. We don't have to produce it. We don't have to work it up. It is the Holy Spirit Himself who will give us the same kind of love for other Christians that Jesus has for other Christians. And He will do it supernaturally if we want it. So here is the great, big, infinite, divine how, who is greater than all of our differences... All of our backgrounds, all of our personalities and temperaments and, and conflicts and histories and carnality. And then finally, we need to ask God to fill us with his Holy Spirit and this love for the rest of the body of Christ. And he will. Because in the words of John, if we ask anything in accordance with his will. We can have the confidence that he will give us what we have asked for. He will always furnish us with this love for the rest of the body of Christ. None of us will ever arrive in this area in our Christian life. We will always grow in this as is the case with every area of Christ likeness until the Lord comes back. I remember years ago, downtown on 10th and F, a guy came in for counseling. Before we got to his problems, he wanted to address mine. Used up the whole session. He said, Pastor, he said, I know you love the Lord. But do you love people? I hit them. (laughs) God is easy to love. People are much, much harder to love. What he didn't know is I was trying really hard. But for where I came from, there was a lot of work to do in that area. But I have found, and I know you have found it to be true in your own life, that one of the greatest experiences that happens in our life as Christians, as the years go by, is to realize I'm growing in my love for the body of Christ, whatever the differences, whatever personalities. Whatever giftings and callings and to look and to be able to say I was not what I once was in terms of a hyper critical spirit toward others. Now, there is to be a critical spirit in the sense of of testing and by the word of God and all those things. I'm not saying that we jettison that, but there's a hyper critical spirit defines fault with people that aren't just like us. And finds fault with people that are way beyond what's in this book, this Bible. And one of the great things and feelings that you have in your spirit as time goes on. Is to realize that God is growing me in this area of love. And the more that we become like this, the greater there is this communion between us and the Holy Spirit, because it's His way of saying, All right, now you're getting it. This is the love that Christ has for His people in the light of all that He knows that they face and that He alone knows. I am not addressing a local situation. I'm talking about the subject of love related to this church. That's one of the nice things about just heading through the scriptures is nobody can think that you're aiming at them. I thank you for the wonderful place that you impart, that you play in making this very loving church. It's a great, great blessing. But I'm also always thankful to come to this passage and passages like it to be freshly challenged concerning this subject in case I have become disobedient to it personally or in case I have become negligent in terms of growing in this area in my life. And so we are thankful to be able to study this passage this morning in unity and fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Let's stand together and we'll pray. When I was a new Christian, I remember a song that impacted me greatly. It was called the charity song from First Corinthians chapter 13. And one of the lines in it said, if I have not charity... If love does not flow from me, I am nothing. That's quite a word. And then the next line of the song was, Jesus, reduce me to love. And it's a wonderful prayer. Let's pray it now. Lord, we ask as we just stand before you, just a simple group of your people who you have lavished unbelievable grace upon And we just ask this morning that you would continue to reduce us to this love that looks like Christ. We trust you and ask you for, Lord, the work of your Holy Spirit that will produce this within us. I just want us as we just stand here for a moment, just quietly. Nobody try to help me, please. But just as a point of response before we head out in so many different directions. If you sit here today or stand here today and you say, Lord, I'm a, I'm a million miles away from obeying this verse. I hate everybody. I hate every Christian that isn't like me. I have a hypercritical spirit that looks nothing like Christ. And I want to repent of that today. You just say that to him today. Confess that sin, repent, get a fresh start. If you sit here today or stand and you say, Lord, I, I have lost sight of this as a priority. I've forgotten how important this is to you. And I haven't grown in this area for months and years. Then you need to turn back and make it the priority that it is to Christ this morning before you leave. He'll be happy. To give you that work of your Holy Spirit. Of his Holy Spirit. And Lord all of us just pray that you would help us Lord. We recognize in some measure how important this is to you. And we pray Lord that you would always keep this that important to us. We trust You to do it in our lives by Your Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.